When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to this week's Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And we are going guestless this week because, as we record this, it is Thursday, November 11th, Veterans Day. Thank you, veterans. Uh, It is also, however, the day after signing day. And that means that we rolled out the first iteration of our 2022 recruiting class rankings. So Joe and I are going to dive into that um, as well as touch on some of the news around college baseball, a little bit of a newsy week as it, as it were, but mostly we're here to talk about 2022 recruiting classes as players around the country. We're able to put pen to paper on national letters of intent to formalize and finalize their college commitments so, like I said, we're, we're going to dive into those top 2022 classes here on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're here. It's the day after signing day. Signing day in college baseball, as I probably remark, like literally every year, is not like it is for, uh, for football. There are not guys sitting at tables with three different hats making decisions. Although, honestly, I'm not sure how much that's happening in football anymore either. It feels, at least on signing day, that feels like um, a little bit of a relic at this point. There, there are guys doing it, but it, it seems like they're also a lot more spread out and just some straight up social media announcements happening. But the point is that because of the draft and everything else in baseball, uh, it's uh, signing day isn't, isn't the huge celebration that it is in some other sports, uh, but it is a day to be celebrated nonetheless. And, and, players do that in just a different way you know they've made their commitment a year two years three years ago but this is uh it, it's still a time where they're celebrating the, the the final bit of the process signing that national letter of intent to to lock it in so it's a uh, it's an exciting time in the sport i think yeah two two things on uh, a lot of what you said there first uh, yes happy veterans day 
uh, thank you to those veterans out there. It's the joke that uh, Mike Birbiglia says that uh, I love the troops because if they were not the troops, I would be the troops and I would be the worst troops. Um, <laughs> certainly rings true for me. Um, so all jokes aside, thank you to all the veterans out there for their service. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, the the whole hats on the table thing, it does kind of feel like a relic. I'm glad you brought that up. I hadn't really noticed that, but I think you're right. And I think it's like an extension of what we see generally, I think in media and sports where I think more and more athletes, um, you know, kind of just thinking like, well, I don't really need, you know, it used to be, I guess you did the announcements on ESPN because ESPN was how you got the broadest reach, you know, and, and how you, could... I, I think the guys are still doing them on ESPN, like the top, top guys, but like, it used to just also be like, Oh, well, we'll call like the local newspaper and the TV sure. station and they'll show up. And like, that feels like, the stuff that's going away yeah it's probably true but it is like a lot of social media stuff i mean you know these athletes who get followed you know on social media heavily not just by people who follow the sports teams but their peers frankly um that does seem like you know i can just do that myself in a lot of cases and get as much reach or however you want to define that as, as you could doing it any other way so an interesting little development there but Certainly, you know, you are knee deep in these recruiting classes to put out the rankings that you did that just got released on the website this week. I always appreciate this day because as someone who is not paying as close attention to the recruiting as you are, this is kind of like uh, Joe's opportunity to start learning the names that I'm going to need to know for the next year. Uh, so that is this is always kind of a nice kickoff to getting to know that group of players, because, again, I'm not paying as much attention to it as you are or frankly, that our colleague Carlos Colazzo is because he's looking at these names as potential draft picks down the line. Uh, so this is kind of a nice kickoff to a, a new a new group of guys for me to get to know a little bit. Um, and in some cases, we'll, we'll get to know over a number of years. And in some cases, it will be a fleeting thing because they will be in pro ball rather than a college campus. Yeah, uh, Carlos definitely has been paying attention to these players even more than I have. Um, you know, as he went through the the showcase circuit this summer, I kind of pick it up in the fall. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a exciting exciting class to to dig into. Um, some unique aspects to it that we'll uh, I'm sure we'll hit on here. Uh, the the rankings themselves, which are you can find at baseballamerica.com, and subscribers can find full breakdowns of. Right now, it's a top fifteen. The intention is to expand to 25 by the end of the calendar year, hopefully a little before the end of the calendar year, other projects, you know, time commitment um, withstanding. We'll, we'll see exactly when, when that happens, but there are 15 fully, like, like full breakdowns that the top 15, you can read about all of the top recruits in their classes. And I've never had a full 25, like, like all, all top 25 classes broken down in the fall. But again, with the, the goal of expanding this list to 25 within the next couple months, I also intend to have those classes fully broken down. So hopefully that'll be a bit of an expansion of, of what we've typically done in the fall it wasn't that long ago that we weren't even ranking these classes in the fall so uh it, it's been an interesting exercise to to start doing that and i enjoy doing it at this stage at, at first i was like well i don't know like 
the top players all like go and they get drafted. So what, how do you, how do you manage that and, and, and rank classes based on that? But I, I have found that it's, uh, it's, it's not as difficult as it might appear on the surface to, uh, to account for, for those changes. And, you know, it's, so the, the rankings include everyone uh, in, in high school or junior college that's committed at this point. And, you know, they, they will change a little bit draft injuries, players just get better or worse. Um, you know, so it's a long journey between now and when these rankings are finalized, when the, the players arrive on campus next fall, but it's, uh, it, it's fun to watch it. Um, you know, just the evolution of it over, over the, the 10 month period, I guess that it is uh, from, from now until the, the start of the fall semester. Uh, so having said all of that, Vanderbilt ranks number one, they have an incredible group of talent at the top of the class. Uh, they have right-hander Dylan Lesko, who was the Gatorade National Player of the Year in 2021, which is an exceedingly rare honor to win as an underclassman. And so Dylan Lesko, one, one of the headliners, but not the only headliner, they, they also have Andrew or Drew Jones, son of Andrew Jones, former Braves center fielder. Uh, Drew Jones, also a premier defensive center fielder. And it, it just builds from there. Vanderbilt has some incredible, incredible talent. They have half a dozen guys, I would say, that are going to be in first round, in the first round discussion uh, for, for the draft this year. So how many of those guys show up? I don't know. Nobody knows right now. They're going to lose a couple of them, I bet. But uh, if they are able to land even half of that <laughs> group or whatever uh, they're, they're at the tippy top of the class. They would, they would be in, in outstanding shape. LSU number two, they might have the deepest class. The, they have a lot of really, really good talent that guys that could be picked in the, yeah, they could, some of them could be first rounders, but probably more just like top 100 type picks, um, which, you know, makes it makes judging, signability and, and draft interest a little more challenging right now, but, uh, you know, Paxton Kling, outfielder from Pennsylvania, um, Justin Crawford, Carl Crawford, you know, former Red Sox, uh, Tampa Bay Ray, uh, his son, he, uh, uh kind of like his father as well. Um, a, a slashy speedy, speedy type out there. And, uh, they have LSU has some incredible pitching, a lot of really big dudes that throw really hard. Um, it, it's just, it's, for me, that's probably the deepest class out there. So those are the top two. Um, probably not a huge surprise to see Vanderbilt and LSU sitting at or near the top of, of recruiting rankings. Uh, that th Those two obviously have brought in plenty of number one ranked classes over the years. And uh, it, it looks like those two are uh, two of the absolute standouts again this season. Yeah, the, the endless debate in college baseball recruiting of how much you recruit the guys who look like sure things to to end up in pro baseball, uh, you know, kind of continues. But the thing about it is these high-end SEC schools, I mean, not only at this point, when you factor in the fact that college baseball is just, with each passing year, gets a little bit more mainstream. Um, you think about NLI money, uh, maybe playing a little bit of a role on the, on the margins here. Um, and also the fact that 
the players start to look at who's come to campus, right? So, you know, Vanderbilt starts to get these guys to campus, you know, uh, a team that we didn't just talk about, but UCLA gets some of these guys to campus. LSU gets these guys to campus. And that starts to build on itself to the point where now you go into it with Vanderbilt's class and you say, you know, they've got six guys who are probably going to at least be in the periphery of the first round conversation at some point over the next, you know, however long it is until, until that draft. Um, and yet you kind of also assume that they're probably going to get at least one of them, um, you know, maybe a couple of them, and that would be a really, a really good haul. So that's the reason why as a coaching staff, especially when you're trying to recruit on the high end, why you do play in those waters, right. Is because yeah, you, you might swing and miss and you're going to swing and miss a lot and you might swing and miss on entire classes. We've seen that happen where, okay, every, every guy who we thought was going to get taken high, got taken high and he signed. That will happen. But you are going to hit on some of these guys and those guys can be program changers. And then that success builds on itself. And then, then here you are. And there's a lot of factors that go into it, but the recruiting is, as they say, the lifeblood. And that, that's a great first step there. Um, was there more, uh, as you went through this, was there, would you say more daylight between Vanderbilt and LSU or between LSU and the rest of, of the field here? That's a good question. Um, I think I think more between LSU and the field. Um, Miami comes in at number three, and you could argue for a couple schools at number three, probably. I think it would be hard to argue anyone over LSU and Vanderbilt. Um, the debate to be had between Vanderbilt and LSU is more about like, do you value LSU's depth of talent or do you value Vanderbilt's uh, high end potential? And kind of my philosophy generally is more towards high end than depth. Like that's, that's, been kind of a long-standing philosophy as I put together recruiting class rankings over the last half dozen years. So I guess that's no surprise then that I went with Vanderbilt here. Uh, but I, you could look at LSU and particularly if you, you know, we don't put uh, any sort of like algorithm or, you know, some sort of formula together. I guess those two things mean the same algorithm and formula basically are the same thing but but the point is we know we don't have a point system wherein you know the a, a player that ranks in the top 10 of, of a class is equal to 10 points and, and you know we, we we don't we don't make this a math equation um this is all much more feel than like true science like that but the point is if you put it into some sort of equation if you make it more formulaic, then you might end up with LSU being the, the number one class because they have so much depth. Like that, that's how that plays. Um, so yeah, I, I think the the difference between Vanderbilt and LSU is somewhat close, somewhat down to what you value. The difference between those two and the field, I do think there's just a, a, a more true gap between those two schools and, and everyone else. I think baseball recruiting is, is kind of in a place where it, it lends itself to having to be a little more art than science. 
because you, you look at it, I think in football, for example, I think it makes a little bit of sense to kind of put a recruiting formula together to try to rank these classes because the classes are so big year after year. Like you'll have some baseball classes that rival football classes in terms of number, but you're not typically seeing that every year. So you kind of have to do a little bit of number crunching there to try to figure out exactly what you're looking at. Also, I think you have to value depth in football to a greater degree, because even if you're talking a quarterback, if you've got a blue chip quarterback and then not a lot else, well, that's not going to really do you a lot of good, especially if you're in a, a power five league. Basketball is the other way, right? Where it's like, you know, they, they have, and his name escapes me, but there's a, the blue chip prospect who's going to Wisconsin, Milwaukee, because his dad's the coach there, Baldwin, I think is, is his last name. Um, and like, that could be enough for Milwaukee to suddenly be a contender in the horizon league. Right. Like, and they've not been very good before. Um, basketball is very much a best player wins sport. Baseball kind of falls in between. And I think that really kind of makes it to where it's tough to, to if you wanted to try to do, a, I'm sure some people smarter than you and I could take a pretty good stab at it, but I don't know that it would be all that effective just because it really is kind of a, it really does kind of stand between those two things where a handful of high-end guys really can change the shape of a team and change the trajectory of a program. But on the other hand, you're not going to get by and you're not going to win national titles or even conference titles by a, a class that has one transcendent player and a lot of other kind of average to a, maybe slightly above average players. And, and I I'm with you in that. I don't, I also don't want to overvalue volume because volume is just volume, you know, in a, in a lot of cases and not all those guys can play. You got nine spots in the lineup. You have four starting you know, four starting pitchers and a handful of bullpen guys you can get innings to. And that's, that's about it at any given time. So I think baseball is kind of in that, in that unique pocket where it's, it, it would be tough even if you tried to quantify it a little bit more. Yeah. I also think that, uh, you know, if you look at a couple other services that publications that do recruiting rankings, they do operate more formulaically and, you know, perfect game is, I believe more formulaic, and they're in a position to do it because, you know, that's kind of their, like they're, they're, they're one of their main purposes is to have players come to their events and evaluate them. And then they, you know, produce a, a grade for that player. So like they're in a position to have grades for thousands of players in the country and then to spit that into a formula and, and have something come out and say, well, these are the best, Right. We don't have, I don't, I don't have a database of all of these players with the grade attached to them. Um, so that, that is also one of the challenges because that, that's one of the things that the football sites and the basketball sites also have is that they attach stars to the players. And so if you're a five-star, that, that means one thing and four-star means something else and all the rest of it. Like, again, we don't, we don't really have that. So I just try and report like the way we do for our draft rankings for our prospect handbook. I just try and gather as much information as I can about it and then synthesize it and then, you know, stack them up. And that, that, that fits more with our process uh, that feeds into the more, more of our ethos. And so that's how we, how we go about doing this. And it's challenging right now because, you know, we're only going to learn more about these players. I mean, and that's true for everyone. The next however many months until the draft is a really important time in the industry for learning about the players. And, you know, so we're only going to find out more information and that will only make the, the final rankings better. 
but at the top of the class, we know a lot. And so I, I, I feel pretty good about where, uh, where the rankings stand right now, but there's, uh, there is much, much still to be learned out there for sure. What else do you have on the, the, I have, I have some specific questions, but it's, it's kind of after we get through the top five. So are there are other things that you want to touch on in, in this top five before we move on. Well, I, I think that it's notable here that um, Louisville is coming in at five. Uh, the Cardinals obviously missed the NCAA tournament this year. Uh, this, this 2022 class is not going to help the 2022 team get back into the tournament and whatever. Uh, but they all committed generally during that like 2017 to 2019 run for the Cardinals, which was obviously a very good one. That includes having Brendan McKay at the front end in, in 2017 uh, and at the back end in 2019, getting to, you know, the, the bracket final in Omaha before losing to Vanderbilt. Um, so it was, a, it was a very productive run for Louisville and they converted that into a really good recruiting class. And just knowing that they kind of need some more talent coming in, uh, I, I think that there are they're going to have to wait for these players, obviously, and they, they need to get where they need to go this year without them. But, but I do think that uh, it's, a, it's a good sign for kind of the next generation of, of Louisville Cardinals. Yeah, that, that's a good one. That, that one actually caught my eye a little bit too, is, is Louisville. And we knew that the chances of Louisville actually being in any sort of down, downward trend. I mean, I, I guess in, in one way, a downward trend was kind of inevitable just because few programs continue to, to uh, operate at as high a level as Louisville had for quite some time there. So in some ways, a little reversion to the mean uh, was probably going to happen there. Maybe that's what we saw. But on the other hand, you knew that that was not going to be any sort of extended period based on what we'd seen. So this, I think, signals that that is the case and they will be back to where we are used to seeing them. Um, the, the things that I that kind of caught my eye a little bit just outside the top five is Clemson at number six. And, you know, it's a, it's a program that um, hasn't, speaking of programs that have, have downturned a little bit, a program that hasn't been operating at the expectations of what Clemson was, let's say, certainly pre-2011. I think the last Omaha trip is 2010, I believe. So certainly not operating at that level and really not even operating, you know, missed regionals last year, not even operating at, at the expectations of, of what the program has been up to last season. So obviously, you know, like you mentioned with Louisville, this class does not help the 2022 team. And I think there are some real questions about how much better can we expect the 2022 Clemson team to be. There are some individual players to like a whole lot there. Um, so there, there are some, some reasons for optimism, but this is obviously a, a, a place that expects to win. It's a coaching staff that I think is probably feeling some pressure there having missed the postseason last year, which is something Clemson just doesn't typically do. Um, so I think it's a situation where if they can write the ship enough to show some progress in 2022, get back into the postseason, show a little life there, um, you know, maybe maybe some help is coming on the way to, to really get this thing turned around and get Clemson back to competing at the type of level that they expect to compete at historically. Yeah, this is a very interesting group, and it's I'm fascinated to see where the Tigers recruiting class goes over the next six to eight months they have perhaps they have a one-two punch at the top of the class in uh that, that can compete with any anyone's one-two in the country in, in brock porter and tristan smith porter is a right-hander tristan smith is a left-hander 
those two guys are two of the five, six best pitchers in this class. And like no one outside of Vanderbilt, like, Vanderbilt would probably be the only one that I would really even say like can compete truly with Clemson on, on just like the top two pitchers in its class. So that is a big part of why Clemson's where it's at, because those two guys are potential frontline starters for Clemson for however many years they want to be in college. I think they're both draft eligible sophomores, assuming the rules stay the, similar to what they are now. But they would they would be come in, be very impactful as freshmen, lead the line as sophomores kind of kind of players. Now, getting them to campus is going to be a challenge in some respects for all the reasons we've, we've already talked about. But behind them, Clemson has some really good players as well. They just have play. The rest of them aren't at that level and but maybe on the verges of breakouts. In, so like then the question is, does the breakout happen this spring, in which case maybe they then get run up draft boards and Clemson doesn't get them? Or does it happen when they arrive in college, you know, get into the strength and nutrition program that Clemson can put them in. And so I, that one is just, I, it, it could go a number of different ways right now. I mean, again, with, with Porter and, and Smith, it, it becomes very easy to, to love the upside of the class. But if a guy like Calvert Cook, who's a right-hander, if he makes a jump, that could give them another really exciting arm. Chris Maldonado, who uh, is the younger brother of, uh, of Nick Maldonado, the, the uh, Vanderbilt closer, his, their oldest brother also played college baseball at Pitt. Um, you know, he's just a really good all-around infielder. I, they have a lot of players like that in this class. And so if they, if they could get one of at least Porter or Smith to school and then you know see some of these other guys in the class realize some of their upside it would be really exciting for the tigers now you probably could have said some similar things about this group that clemson's group it's 2021 class at this time last year and i probably did um and unfortunately for clemson they lost a couple of their top guys into the draft um so it it, it we'll, we'll see where this group goes if they can however hold on to some of them you know, Clemson's recruiting class in, in 2021 was the top 25 class anyway. But in terms of getting a top 10 group in, uh, a lot of it's going to rely on um, what kind of breakout happens this spring for some players and what happens to Porter and Smith. So then moving on a little bit, you've got Duke at number eight. And I actually want to be respectful to Duke by not really focusing on that too much, because I think <laughs> at this point, I think that's just kind of what we have to come to turn. And we talked about this before. This is not new. We talked about it with their 21 class that was highly ranked. So led by Alex Mooney. And so, you know, again, I, I want to be actually be respectful to what they're doing by not gawking at that, because I think that's just a little bit of a new normal we have to get used to with Duke, at least with this coaching staff in place like this, because this is this is just what they're doing now. Um, a little bit further down is Auburn, though, and I, I don't necessarily have like a big take on this necessarily more as much as I just want to say, you know, we talked about when we talked about the 2021 recruiting rankings about how 
as we sit here and talk about how, you know, you don't want to just look at volume because volume is just volume. And, you know, Auburn's recruiting class wasn't ranked in, in the 2021 rankings, even though there were quality players there in part because it was a smaller class because they don't need, they didn't need a bigger class. And so this is kind of the, I would have to assume you tell me a little bit of the kickback of that where now it's like, okay, we know this is now a class. We need to be a little bit bigger. We probably need to have a little more impact right away. Um, so that's what this class I would assume would represent for Auburn. And again, like we said back then, just because you didn't see the Tigers as part of the 2021 rankings does not necessarily mean that this class is, is or this coaching staff is, is not doing their job when it comes to recruiting. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty, pretty right on there. You know, some, some places are places where they move a little more in cycles and this class this 2022 class is designed to in part replace the 2019 Auburn class, uh, which, you know, we'll see what happens to it in the draft this year, but they could lose a fair number of guys to the draft from that class. So this is, you know, just a little bit of the cycle that they're on. The other thing that happened this summer, as you well know, Joe, and as we've talked about on the podcast is that they hit the portal pretty hard, um, bringing in some more experience, over you know and I, I don't think they I don't think that affected their 2021 recruiting class strategy particularly but it you know they maybe they would have brought in junior college players before you know I, I don't think it changed what they were doing with high school players but they did they did hit the portal last year and nobody wants to do that from what I can tell nobody really wants to do that on an annual basis certainly not at the uh, you know level of a of a program like Auburn that's kind of meant to be a, well, when we need it, it's there, but you know, really we have to be developing our own players kind of bit. And so this class is uh, it's especially deep on the mound. Cause I guess that's kind of the, the concern, the draft concern that Auburn has going forward is um, what, what is the draft going to do to their pitching staff depth um, this summer? So it's uh it's a good group overall, but it's, it's especially uh, kind of deep on the mound. So as you alluded to, you know, you will eventually expand this group. We will, we will know more as time goes on, but just kind of to give loyal listeners of our podcast, um, maybe a little bit of, of further information on some of the stuff. Were there any other programs, teams, just players who are particularly interesting in 20, uh, 2022 classes that aren't represented on this list of 15 that, that you would like to uh, shout out before we move on? Well, I think one notable thing here is that the uh, Pac-12 is not represented here at all. And, you know, coming off of a year where they had, I think it was five of the top 25 classes were Pac-12 schools and number one was a Pac-12 school in UCLA. Maybe that's a little odd. Um, Maybe it's just a little odd period that you don't see a school from California on here like that. That's it's not really where we're at or not usually where we're at with these things. I think a few things are at play there. Uh, one is that, you know, UCLA brought in once once things started snowballing for UCLA. I think that, you know, that has downstream impacts. If you get more players in than you were anticipating. Um, you know, now you maybe take a smaller group the next year. And so UCLA holding on to almost their entire 2021 class then means that 
well, okay, maybe it can be smaller in 2022. And, you know, like we said, like, I, I don't want to just value depth for the sake of valuing depth, but smaller classes, it it just is harder to work with them sometimes in in these rankings. So that's one thing that's happening with UCLA. But if we, when it does get expanded, there will be Pac-12 schools represented and two that I like the looks of right now are Oregon and Oregon State. Uh, We talked a lot about Oregon State in the 2021 rankings and they just seem like they're continuing to recruit at a high level and uh oregon is uh is is very intriguing right now they're kind of going all over the country uh recruiting wise they're not sticking to to the northwest or the the west coast even they're 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 being pretty expansive they had tamar johnson the number one player in the country in on an official visit uh, a few weeks ago um tamar johnson's still uncommitted um but even even if they don't get him, um, you know they they have some recruiting pipelines developing outside of the West Coast, which I think is good and smart for Oregon because you know the, there are a lot of players out west, and you know you look at you know schools like Stanford and UCLA and USC and and you know Oregon State and Oregon like they they all can you know go out and, and get west coast players that they need to but you know just like there are players out west that want to come east it makes sense that the reverse would also be true and you know so if oregon could go out and find some of those players that are intrigued by what's happening out there by you know the the coaching staff by it's a really pretty campus um you know that they have the the cool factor or whatever with the everything that Nike does and, and you see for the, the football team, like, you know, you can tap into that from a baseball perspective. And uh, so if, uh, if Oregon's going to start doing that and it, it sure seems like they are, I, I think that's exciting for them moving forward. Yeah, actually, before we, before we move on here and get away from recruiting, you mentioned Tamar Johnson, top player in the class, um, uncommitted, I guess a couple questions here. Um, how common is it that a player top, ranked player like this is, is uncommitted this at this point of the, of the game, if you will, you know, have we had a situation like this as you've been ranking these classes in the past few years? And, and what do we know about what he had, what his activity has been as far as recruiting goes? So it is completely unheard of in the time I've been doing this, that a player of Tamar Johnson's quality would be uncommitted at this point. Uh, it is like, we talked about how different baseball is from football. Uh, this is one area where I do feel a little bit like, oh, hey, I guess this is what football deals with on an annual basis that they might not know where, uh, I mean, maybe it's not the number one player going into signing day, but certainly there are top 10 players in football that announce on signing day. And I was like, so what do, how do, how do we handle this? Uh, if, what if, what if Tamar commits like at three o'clock on signing day, like we'd, we'd already have like published the list or whatever. Anyway, that was just a weird uh, situation that no, I, I, I have not dealt with this in the, again, we've only been doing fall recruiting rankings for like three or four years now. Um, but I, you'd have to go back a, a, a fairly long way before that to find a time when, Again, a, a player of a 
not not just the number one player, but a top five, top ten type, uh, was uncommitted. And I talked with, uh, with Tamar kind of about that at Jupiter, and he talked about how like they had just his family had had a plan in place, and they were following the plan, and part of that plan meant taking official visits and and trying to, you know, go into as much depth and detail as they could. He has older brothers that have played college baseball. Um, one of them is at Georgia Tech now, Turvell. One of them played at Eastern Kentucky. Uh, so the family knows kind of what the deal generally is. And um, I, they're just, they're, they're running through it right now. He, uh, he visited Oregon. He visited Georgia Tech. He might have visited a couple other places, but I, I know that those two visits happened uh, within the last month. We'll see where he ends up. Obviously, though, he is the number one player in the country, and I think everyone understands the score that, you know, he – if Carlos had a mock draft out today, I'm pretty sure Tamar Johnson would be number one on that mock draft. And, you know, so that means what it means. But there is still value in going after him um, for sure, and he's the kind of player that – by all accounts, everyone, he's just kind of a magnetic personality. So I, it, it's not just, oh, he's a really good baseball player. He's also just a really good player to have associated with your program. Uh, and, and if you did get him on campus, he's obviously like a, he's, he's generational as a college talent, if, if it were to happen. Um, so the, there are there are schools that that very much want to have him uh, around, and you know I don't know what the timeline is right now, uh, but we'll uh, we'll see how how that commitment process shakes out here. Uh, I guess as it heads down the final stretch, and uh, we'll definitely update the uh, the rankings when uh, when we do have have an answer on on him. It is not just him though. Uh, in terms of being uncommitted, there are some other high-profile, relatively uncommitted players. Uh, and some of that, I think, is pandemic-related, that uh, they just weren't able to do all of the things that you normally would do in 2020, uh, including they weren't able to visit campuses um, for officials, for unofficials, really for anything. So I, I think some things were, were just delayed, and, and some players are making uh or taking more time this year than than maybe we're used to all right joe so that was that was the 2022 recruiting class rankings check them out over at baseballamerica.com let's uh let's move on to the news of the week i mentioned uh, at the top of the show there was a decent amount of it in college baseball despite the fact that this was uh, a week where a lot of people were focused on on signing day um Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. 
How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's leave the realignment stuff for, for later. I'm kind of sick of realignment, if, that, if that's even possible. Uh, there were two coaching moves this week. Um, Tennessee Tech hired Matt Braga, blast from uh, or, or uh, uh, return to the past, back to the future. There it is <laughs> for Matt Braga as he returns to Tennessee Tech. Last three years, of course, he was at Rice, uh, but he spent 15 years at Tennessee Tech. Before that, took the Golden Eagles to Super Regionals in 2018 back-to-back NCAA tournaments to end his tenure there the first time before he was hired away by Rice. Now he is back in Cookville. Steve Smith um, left a couple weeks ago to take a job uh, in the Tigers organization. So now Matt Braga back uh, back as a head coach at Tennessee Tech. The other thing is Grambling State head coach James Cooper left for a job in the Yankees organization and Grambling elevated longtime assistant Davin Pierre to interim head coach. Um, We'll see how long that interim tag lasts, uh, whether that's uh, I I assume that'll be for the the full spring. uh, And then I'm sure the hope is that he could be the, the the long-term answer there but but we'll uh we'll have to track that uh as it as it comes joe i think the the bigger thing here is is uh the Braga news so he's back in uh in a place where he won big what what are your thoughts here uh as he returns to cookville yeah it seems like a like a really nice situation for both parties honestly you know i think it's a, an opportunity tennessee tech it's not going to be immediate. There's going to need to be some sort of, um, you know, rebuilding effort there. Um, not that, you know, the team wasn't, wasn't too bad last year. It's not like it was a complete collapse situation for them or anything. So it's not, this bad. is it's their third a, head coach since he left. So that, exactly. that's part of why they're, they're just in this situation. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there is going to need to be some rebuilding done there. So it's not going to be immediate, but I mean, he, he's done this before. He knows the lay of the land as well as anybody. Um, so I think this is a really good situation for Tennessee Tech to feel good about what their baseball program is going to be moving forward, even if it might take a couple of years to be, you know, what you might consider fully operational. And, and for Braga, you know, I think it, it's, it's a situation where um, it, it's a good opportunity for him to be back in a position where he can, he can succeed. I, you know, it just didn't work at Rice. We've talked about that before, how it kind of felt like an odd fit from the jump on that one. But you know, people, people tend to, I, I will, I don't, I don't know him. I, I've actually never really spoken with him. And that's a lie. I actually did. I saw Tennessee tech um, the, the year they were uh, 2018. I saw them early in that season. So I have met him 
on a, on a brief occasion, but I don't really know him, but uh, you know, the people who do don't really have, you know, don't really have bad things to say about him. He seems to be really well liked. Um, so, you, you know, you, you root for guys like that who are, would, understandably to be disappointed with how when, when he got his shot at a bigger program in this case rice so it is nice to see that he is going to get an opportunity to be a head coach again relatively soon in a place where he can have success so um so i think i think it's a a, a, a really a win-win for both groups um you know in tennessee tech i think is really set up well in the OVC is as, as long as, you know, you mentioned skipping over the realignment stuff, I guess it, it will still filter in a little bit to this conversation because, you know, with the OVC losing what they've lost in, in um, you know, notably Jacksonville state, I think chief among them losing what they've lost the last and Eastern Kentucky and Eastern Kentucky, which was, which was certainly cycling up um, Tennessee tech's in a pretty good place to, to be the type of team that can really compete year after year in the OVC to, to a degree, greater than even what it already was towards the end of the, the Braga era. So um, I think, you know, positive stuff overall for Tennessee Tech just from a baseball standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I, – I can't imagine they would have found anyone that could engender as much optimism as Matt Braga. Well, this time um, of year in particular. I, yes, absolutely this time of year. But even if they had – even if Steve Smith had left, uh, you know, in June, the, the normal hiring season – I, they, I, I guess I, I can also say that because, you know, they, like I said, this is the third time they're hiring a coach since Braga left the first time. Uh, Justin Holmes was his assistant coach um, promoted after he left and that ended after a year um, in not great terms. And then Steve Smith comes in and, and Steve Smith has a ton of experience uh, was did really well with Baylor a decade ago or whatever. Um, but it, it didn't quite click. And, you know, look, I, I don't want to judge anyone on 2020 and 2021, if those are your first two years in a program, but uh, it, it hadn't quite come together for the Golden Eagles. And now you bring back a guy that engineered the best season in Ohio Valley Conference history, um, not just program history, but conference history. And it wasn't a flash in the pan. He had built that thing for well over a decade. They, the year before in 2017, not only did they make the NCAA tournament, but they upset Florida state uh, in the opening game of, of a regional uh, you know, that it, it was not just a one year, one year wonder there. So I, I would, I would feel very good about Tennessee tech moving forward again, maybe not in 2022, maybe not even in 2023 necessarily uh, are, are they going to be ready to, go out and, and win the Valley. Uh, but in the not so distant future, I, I, I think that this program will be, be back in a, a very advantageous spot. And quickly on James Cooper, um, good record at Grambling. Grambling, one of the more consistent programs in the SWAC. Uh, one, just has, the one has not finished uh, lower than second place in the division since uh, 2016. Yeah. So just a consistent winner, kind of quietly. So uh, obviously the SWAC is one of those conferences that, almost always has a juggernaut in it. Typically, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's been uh, Alabama state at times. I guess not juggernaut. There's typically a couple of programs that are really running the show there. So, and that's true of the MEAC as well. Um, So it's kind of tough to break through and be more than you are, but Grambling was uh, just one of the more consistent programs in that conference year after year. And secondarily, it's, it's uh, you, you like to see, a SWAC baseball coach getting an opportunity in pro ball, uh, 
to, to kind of create a situation where uh, the SWAC jobs or MEAC jobs or any HBCU baseball job is thought of as a place where one can get those kinds of opportunities. So kind of a cool deal there to see a coach who done a good job for, for more than a decade at this point, uh, get that kind of opportunity. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Devin Pierre um, was there the whole time with Cooper. So a lot of the success he's, I mean, all of the success he's been associated with uh, Grambling uh, has certainly been on the up uh, the last, last few years, like I mentioned, hasn't finished worse than second place in the conference. Um, and they've had more staying power, I would say than you know, that they're the MEAC juggernauts kind of are the MEAC juggernauts, although now some of them are in the SWAC, I guess <laughs> Bethune and FAMU have moved, but, but they, they were what they were like, it was hard to break through in the MEAC. The SWAC has been a little more open to it, uh, but it isn't always the easiest thing to stay up. You know, the Prairie View A&M is up for a while, goes through a coaching change and falls back down. You know, Texas Southern uh, has, has been there a lot. Southern has been there an awful lot as well. Alabama State kind of comes out of nowhere um, with, with under Mervell Melendez and, and you know, the, the, the point is that, uh, you know, Grambling has, has done a good job under Cooper and Pierre and, and uh, shown some more consistency than, than some of the other programs, even if they haven't had quite the high highs that, that some of the, the competitors have. All right, Joe, uh, I guess it's time for real realignment update, uh, our weekly, our favorite weekly segment. And this week there wasn't actual movement i don't think uh it was announcements that there would be no movement it was western kentucky and middle tennessee state not moving from conference usa to the mac middle tennessee state it was their decision uh western kentucky it it may not have been their decision it may have been the max decision um but they're they're remaining in Conference USA, and McNeese State is going to remain in the Southland instead of heading to the WAC. So, uh, with that, it looks like Conference USA has stabilized, and perhaps the Southland can begin to find some stability, having lost uh, several members. Yeah, it was um, kind of an interesting, I don't want to say anticlimactic, because that's not fair, that kind of is a value judgment, I guess, but um, it, all this realignment movement ended with no movement, and it, it feels like maybe the dust has settled a little bit here. And I mean, that said, the Southland is probably going to have to call some Division II schools. Probably, still, right? probably so, probably <laughs> so. So yeah, if you're in Division II, I guess maybe you, you, you will still feel the ripple effects of this thing, but it, just a lot of things happening here. I mean, from from a baseball standpoint, a lot of it is not the most um, important movement necessarily. Like Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky, as we talked about last week, going to the MAC, I don't think is a game changer for the MAC and for Conference USA. Maybe it meant they went fishing for a couple of other teams, but it you know probably wouldn't change the overall outlook of that conference. And so some some really good reporting has been done out here on this stuff. Um, you know, our friend, former podcast guest Matt Brown, has done a lot of it. Just some some interesting things there with stuff like, you know, the wax grand plan to, you know, catapult all the way up from not having football to having football to being an FBS conference, you know, certainly looks like it's maybe taken a blow with the likes of Sam Houston moving to conference USA and, you know, the Sam Houston's president 
maybe, you know, being out there with concerns that maybe the WAC wasn't going to be able to do all of the things that they had hoped it maybe would do. Um, so there's that, and maybe that scared off McNeese in that case. And, you know, uh, Middle Tennessee and Western Kentucky maybe not agreeing on moving, and it was a package deal for the MAC. It was both or neither, and then Middle Tennessee got cold feet. So just a lot of moving parts here, and it strikes me. My big overarching thought, I guess, based on all of that, is the idea that these universities, because really it is at this level a university decision, like no, certainly no coaches, but not even really athletic directors are necessarily making the ultimate decisions here on this type of stuff. They have an opinion, obviously, but this is, this is the highest levels of universities and these universities are making these decisions that feel very important and, and are on some level very important, but based on so little information about what the world of college athletics, especially at the top level, what we call FBS football is actually going to look like in a decade. And like, that's just a really tough spot to be in. And baseball, as we talked about a million times, is just a long for the ride here. Um, but that strikes me as the most interesting thing here is that we're just kind of assuming a lot of things about what's going to be better for these athletic departments 10 years down the road. And really we have no idea. And I, the, the example I would posit is look at where Sunbelt football is here versus where Sunbelt football was a decade ago. Um, that's obviously, they're not a power five conference, but uh, they now sit towards the top of the pecking order and they didn't a decade ago. So things can change and we just don't know how they're going to change, but people are having to make decisions based on their assumptions of how things will change. And, you know, the, not only do, is just a decade kind of a long time in college sports, um, we're going through in, in the NCAA, they're, they're going through a, a process of changing the constitution. Uh, and just a, they're going to be changing some rules within division one about what being in division one means. It, it sure seems like that that's where they're headed this winter, what moving up to division one entails, what being in FBS versus FCS entails, all of that being on the table at a time when people are trying to figure out conference membership, uh, sure seems like a real challenge. So I, uh, Glad well, I don't have to make these kinds of decisions, but it, it will be interesting to see once they kind of formalize whatever new rules they come up with, who uh, who may be judged rightly and, and who is who is maybe a little uh, left a little bit in the lurch by however the the next couple months go in NCAA uh, you know rule creation land. That would be the worst section of any theme park. NCAA rule creation <laughs> land. No, thank you. Uh, yes, that would not be not be a popular, not a popular spot. Uh, all right, Joe. We're also in a time of the year where a lot of schools are releasing schedules, and I know you have some scheduling thoughts here as uh, as we start to look to uh, to twenty twenty two and and start being able to uh, to see exactly where where some teams are, are what they're doing in, in terms of, of non-conference and, and conference action. So I want to take you all back to a, boy, a simpler time when you think about it from a number of different ways, uh, early 2020. And we, uh, we were, Teddy and I were getting ready to, we, 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 for those who have been along for the ride and followed our content for a while now, you, you may remember this. Um, if not, I will catch you up quickly. There was enough going on 
in Arizona to start the 2020 season that we both went there. Like that's pretty unheard of, like outside of Omaha, for example, for us both, or really any multi-person team in any college, but like, you know, people from the same publication don't often go to the same place to cover the same things. Cause that's just, you know, doubling efforts that you don't necessarily need. But when you looked at, okay, we had the MLB four tournament, which had Vanderbilt and Michigan, two highly ranked teams, you know, uh, coming off of having just played in the championship series of the CWS plus solid teams in Cal Poly and UConn all playing in a tournament there. You know, you had a highly ranked Arizona state team playing at home, you know, Arizona playing at home, even though the, 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 the competition may not have been the best in, in those cases. Um, and you notably know, the Tucson is not that close to Phoenix. Correct. You know, it's a little sweetener though, I guess in that case, but Arizona state did have a midweek game immediately after that weekend against Oklahoma state. Oklahoma State was in town playing Grand Canyon. Uh, Oklahoma State, not only good, Grand Canyon, one of the better mid-major programs going right now. Um, so you had that. The Angels were hosting a tournament, um, which was a solid, if not, spectac- if not spectacular, a solid field. It was just kind of like an extra thing that, you know, was kind of nice to have out there. Oregon was there at the beginning of this Coach Waz era. Uh, what turned out to be a very good in 2020, not so much in 2021, Pepperdine team was out there among others. Um you had Oregon State doing its annual thing out in Surprise, and you had a pretty good Gonzaga team out there, a BYU team that had just brought in a top 25 recruiting class out there. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing something here. Um, however, I mean, that, I mean, it was enough to keep Teddy and I both busy for the entire weekend and then some. I was out there until, the, you know, I flew out early that following Wednesday morning um, from Arizona. And then I look at it this year, and – and, and, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some details here. I mean, we don't have the Arizona and Arizona state schedules and I don't know who they'll play. History has suggested that it won't necessarily be a standout opponent, but we'll see. Um, the only four tournament is good, but not great. San Diego state, Cal, Houston, TCU, again, good, not great. Um, Oregon state has not released their tournament stuff. We know they're doing a tournament down there, but based on what they've done, I mean, that's going to be about what we saw probably in, in 2020, which is a nice filler event, not going to be the headline. Um, you know, uh, I guess last year they, I guess Kansas state has been down there in the past. That's like a nice program, but it's not, again, not, not a headline situation. Oklahoma state, which often goes to Arizona is not in Arizona this year. They are opening with Vanderbilt in Nashville, not going to be there. I don't think the angels are doing the tournament again this year it was already something that was kind of loosely a tournament it felt kind of more like um less of a tournament and more of like the angels have agreed to allow them to use this facility to play games like there was no real like coordinating effort there it didn't seem like um and i don't mean that in a pejorative i just mean as a statement of fact that it just felt like they just kind of threw the gates open and just said hey here you go you can play your games here um but that a tournament does not appear to be really happening so we go into this year with i don't know where the center of activity is and i kind of assumed and maybe covid threw off a lot of this but i kind of assumed when we looked at what they were doing in 2020 scheduling wise that oh i think what we're seeing here is a situation where i think arizona is going to become the epicenter of opening weekend in college baseball and i guess if you were to pick a single location the phoenix metro is still probably that even with the diminished version of it we're going to see in 2022 but I just thought we were heading towards something a little bit greater than that. Maybe we still are down the line, but in, in 2022, just looking at what we've seen so far, as far as opening weekend goes, it that's that, that ain't it as, as the kids might say. Yeah, that's uh, it definitely is not it. Um, 
you look at some of the things happening elsewhere in the country, there's a massive tournament happening in whatever we're calling the ballpark at Arlington these days. Um, and I know there's, you look at some of what's happening in Florida and there are some very intriguing things, um, there, but Florida's a huge state and, you know, whatever, whatever Florida state's doing, whatever South Florida is doing and, and whatever Florida and Miami are doing are like, they, they don't really overlap in terms of, uh, where you can go and, uh, watch a whole bunch of great college baseball. So yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it does seem like, you know, we, we just saw this week college basketball open and the champions classic. Is that what they call that thing? Uh, you know, in Madison Square Garden with Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, and uh, Michigan State every year. Um, in college baseball, they, they no version of that event has coalesced. Um, whether that would have been, you know, following in the exact for, f- formula and it being the same four schools every year, uh, or you know, you rotate through and you just try and get the four best schools you can get in any one year. It, it still seems like we're, we're looking for that. And maybe, maybe the tournament in Arlington can become that. I don't know, but uh, it, it does seem like that's, uh, that's not where, where we're at uh, here in, in college baseball. And I don't know your feelings on the champions classic exact format, Joe, with the, the, the schools being the exact same every year to me, it gets a little stale. And like, I mean, I get it. It's a, TV event and those are four schools that get ratings but uh I I do kind of wish that there was a little bit more diversity but at the same time the fact that they have this premier event that it doesn't always happen in New York they move it around a little bit too like it's always happening uh there's always something that makes it a little fresher even though it's the same four schools year after year yeah, no, I mean, not a huge fan of that particular format, although I, I do like the fact that it, it moves a little bit. Um, that, that uh, I guess, is a nice little feature there. But I, I'm not a huge fan of that general format. I, you know, if, that would, if that's what it would take to maybe put something together that felt like the centerpiece of college baseball opening weekend, because I do think that is something that, that is lacking a little bit. If that's what it would take to get that done, then maybe I would take it. Um, so like it, the, that format is four schools from four conferences. So off the top of my head, LSU, Texas, for a couple of years, Oregon anyway. State, and I don't know who you would take um, from the ACC. I guess Florida State, Clemson, Miami, Louisville, whoever you want. Like, I, yeah. what, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean that would be interesting. I mean, obviously, you only have a couple more years of Texas after that. It would be you know Tech or something. Uh, yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I'm interested in that format. I mean, maybe you cycle through whoever you, I mean, maybe you cycle through teams there. Of course, then you start to get into like the equity conversation where they I mean, play. you also could grab six because four in a three-day tournament yeah. is a little awkward. So yeah, you could do six. You could also go out and, and take Michigan and like East Carolina. Yeah. Now, see, now, now we're talking too, because I think, the variety is kind of what makes it nice. I, you know, I used to, and this is going to sound like a Homer opinion because I'm a Houston guy, but I, I used to really like, and I understand why they went away from it. And the, the really good Houston Minute Maid tournaments we see are worth giving up what we used to have. Uh, totally agree. You only get no argument from me, but every couple of years in the Houston tournament, you get kind of, a, I don't want to say a stinker because that's not fair because it's still a better tournament than 
you know, some of the, the below average tournaments we see early in the season. But you, you do get a year where it's like, you know, Texas State's involved and Sam Houston's involved and, you know, UL is involved. And, and again, I don't, I don't want to be mean about that, but that's not Ole Miss and LSU and Texas and Texas Tech and, and all that. So, but what they used to do there was that they had kind of a rotating schedule where, and I forget, it's been enough years, I've kind of forgotten, but, you know, Rice and Houston were there every year. And then they would rotate, you know, um, and I for, like I said, I forget who was on each side, but like Texas was there every other year. Texas A&M was there every other year. Texas Tech was there every other year. Baylor every other year. And then there'd be two wild cards. So some years it was really wild wild cards, like UCLA and UC Irvine were there one year. Um, sometimes it was two other, you know, schools in that region that would fill it in. Um, and you just never kind of knew what you were going to get with those two teams. So I kind of like that because you had the familiarity, you kind of knew what you were going to get, the local flavor. And then those two wild cards were always kind of fun. You know, I, I saw Vanderbilt there. Uh, Arizona State was there one year. I mentioned UNC the was there. Houston, UNC was there. Cal was there the year after they went to Omaha. Um, so there was kind of that nice little wild card element to it, which I kind of liked. Um, so again, I understand why that tournament went away from that format, because now it really has taken the lid off of the ceiling of what they can do in that tournament. And there have been some absolute bangers of tournaments there, but I do think the floor is also lower for what we get now because they schedule it that way. So, but something like that feels like the right answer to me, as long as we're just spitballing. Yeah. I mean, I'll be interested to see if, uh, you know, if Arlington putting their event on opening weekend, like what that could be moving forward. Cause the thing with these tournaments is, they look great right up in the first first year or two. Usually, um, it's more the sustaining it is is the challenge. So, I'll uh, I'll be curious about that. Um, obviously, last year Arlington was fantastic. The field again this year I think is 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 pretty strong. I have it uh, uh, I have it right here if you'd like oh, to, do, you? to okay. do it live. Yeah. So, like to your to your point, last year was was really really strong. This year, strong. A little bit of a step back. So we've got, it's also not nearly as regional, which I guess last year I think was probably good because it was, we were dealing with COVID stuff and trying to fly. If it hadn't been that way last year, they would have had problems. Correct. Because not only was it COVID, but also you remember the uh, ice storm that came through North Texas at that time of year. I mean, they were, there was a very real debate as to whether or not they should like morally be able to play that tournament at that time. Um, Anyway, so 2022 field, Arizona, Auburn, K-State, Michigan, Oklahoma, Texas Tech. Very good, not quite as good as what we saw last year. Yeah, that, that's already taken a step back from Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Arkansas, Texas, Texas Tech, and who was the sixth team? Ooh, there are people yelling at us in their in their cars that are we're missing a sixth team here. Some Big Twelve team. Was it? Well, no, um, no, it wasn't Oklahoma State. And it wasn't Oklahoma either. I don't think. We're gonna we're gonna. Oh, it was TCU. Uh, of course. That's right. We're gonna leave that in because that was a real struggle right there. We just kind of went <laughs> together. Uh, sorry to Frog Nation. Indeed, a, go, a very a very good team. We should we should not have been so disrespectful there, TCU. A very good team last year. But yeah, to, I mean, but again, this twenty twenty two field already a little bit of a step back. A very solid field, not necessarily flush with national title contenders so yeah uh 
Opening weekend, interesting. The the contrast here this week of of basketball having again that that big event. I we we can leave aside that basketball opens on a Tuesday, which is awkward. Again, it's a TV thing. Uh, at least baseball, we, we get a weekend, so I, I I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, indeed. I, you know, with trade offs though, what I will say is I'm I'm reminded this week in college basketball champions classic. Great. I'm sure if I look at the schedule for the Saturday, there will be some interesting games on it. However, it feels like roughly 70% of college basketball games right now are mid or low major school facing off against D2 school X or Y. And I'm really glad that like, yes, in college baseball, some geographically remote places, relatively speaking, Minnesota, Iowa, places like that, will do midweek games against lower division opponents. But I am really glad that that is not just a um, every year scheduling thing for people that opening weekend, you play a three game series against the division two school an hour down the road. So I, I, I am really glad that while I, I, I do wish we had a marquee event like the champions classic to really build around. I, I am glad we do not have three game series or any sort of consequential games prominently placed at the beginning of the season between uh, opponents in different divisions. Yes, that is, uh, th- there's a lot to be said for that. Absolutely. Alrighty. Well, it's uh, 99 days to opening day. Um, that's probably the last time you'll hear me refer to countdown as I find that stressful, but we are 99 days to opening day as we record this probably 98 by the time you're listening to it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's coming and uh, we'll have it, everything covered for you over at baseballamerica.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill and Joe is at Joe Healy BA. Uh, in the off season, we go once a week here on the podcast. You can find and subscribe to, to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere where you get your podcasts. Uh, hit the follow, subscribe, whatever button. Uh, rate, review if you can. Uh, we always appreciate hearing from you, uh, the listener, about the podcast. We'll be back here next week, probably with a guest, uh, almost certainly. Uh, with sandwich talk we didn't get to the sandwich talk today uh, but rest assured I know that's what you're here for Uh, we'll we'll have more of that next week Uh, thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every episode of the Baseball America College podcast thank you all for listening for Joe I'm Teddy we'll talk to you next week